Chapter 15 of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth is the Bible's most lengthy treatment of the subject of our belief in the resurrection of the body. Earlier in our affirmation of faith, we read from early in that chapter about Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, along with six of his resurrection appearances. Now, the latter half of that affirmation was taken from verses 21 to 26 about the order of last things, Christ's return and the general resurrection, then the destruction of all the opposing forces and authorities, including the final enemy death, and at the very end, Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father. I want to focus today on the concluding section of this resurrection chapter. One of Paul's reasons for writing is to differentiate the Christian belief in the resurrection of the body, a phrase which occurs, for example, in the Apostles' Creed, from the Greek notion of the immortality of the soul. We get a, an idea of that Greek view in a children's book, What's Heaven, written some years ago by Maria Shriver. It includes lots of pictures of fluffy clouds and blue skies. Heaven, she writes, is a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who were there. At night, you can sit next to the stars. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. And then she talks about her grandmother, who she believes is there. And she says, quote, she is in a safe place with the stars, with God and the angels. She is watching over us from up there. Now, this is similar to what many have taught their children. And yet that portrait of an idyllic, disembodied existence ascending to the clouds above and looking down on the living has more in common with the Greek idea of the immortality of the soul than biblical teaching about and belief in the resurrection of the body. Now, why is this theological issue important? Because it dictates the way we view not only the afterlife, but the way we view all of creation, all physical reality, including our own bodies. The Greeks were dualists. They believed spiritual reality was good, material reality, creation, everything we can see, including our own bodies, was fallen and evil. The Greeks thought of people as made up of various distinct parts, including body and soul, two very different realities. The Greek word for the soul is psyche. They understood the soul or psyche of each human being was pure spirit, good and immortal, while the human body was evil, fallen, and corrupt. In fact, they called the body the prison house of the soul and viewed death as a positive reality to be embraced rather than resisted because through death, the soul experienced true freedom and fulfillment. So our culture's frequent vision of the dead as disembodied spirits floating on clouds is the Greek view, not the biblical view of the afterlife. Further, while for Jews and Christians, the body was a good creation of God and to be used in ways pleasing to God, the Greeks were often indifferent about what one did with one's body because it was already inherently corrupt and evil. 
Unlike the Greeks who liked to divide the human being into various component parts, the Hebrews viewed people as wholes. And the Hebrew word for soul, nephesh, is one of those words that describes the whole human being. It appears for the first time in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when, quote, God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a nephesh, a soul, often translated in many versions, a living being. But the literal word there is soul, nephesh. So most often for Hebrews, the soul describes the whole person as an animated body. Now the word nephesh or soul is used often for the whole person in the Old Testament. For example, when a group of people are described as consisting of a total number of souls. In Hebrew anthropology, we don't really have souls as a component part of who we are. Instead, we are souls. For Hebrews, the soul, the nephesh, is not immortal. As early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, after their act of disobedience, God tells the man and woman, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Once the breath has left the body, the person, the soul, no longer existed. And in Hebrew thinking, the breath, which Greeks might label the soul, had no independent existence outside the body. So we are not inherently immortal. Quite the opposite. However, when we trust in Christ, God gives us the gift of immortality, life everlasting, not as an innate possession, but as a gift of God's grace in Christ. Now, how did the ancient Greeks view death as compared with ancient Hebrews like Jesus? The Greek philosopher Socrates on the day of his execution by suicide spoke serenely with his followers about immortality. And then with sublime calm, Socrates drank the hemlock and died. By contrast, hours before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus trembled. He begged his disciples to stay awake with him, to accompany him through that time of, of struggle. He sweated blood and he prayed that God might remove the cup of suffering and death from him. Rather than calmly embracing death, according to Mark's gospel, Jesus' last discernible words before death were a quote from verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While Socrates embraces death as a friend, which provides liberation from bodily existence, from the prison house of the body, Jesus views death not as a friend, but as his enemy. In fact, in today's text, Paul labels death the last enemy. In other words, Greeks sought liberation from the bondage of the human body through death, while Jesus and his Jewish contemporaries sought liberation from the bondage of sin and death, not from the body. With that introduction, let's hear today's text as Elaine Carlson reads for us. Scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. The Resurrection Body 
But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he cho has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, then this mortal body puts on immortality. Then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. The Word of the Lord. Well, the first thing I hope you noticed about the scripture reading you just heard from Elaine is that the word body appears a total of 14 times as Paul teaches about the resurrection of the body. Hebrew people could not conceive of life without a body of some kind. 
In verses 35 to 49, Paul is trying to explain that even in resurrection, we will have a bodily existence, though our resurrection bodies will not be identical with our present earthly bodies. The Gospels report that when Jesus made his resurrection appearances, his body had changed. There was continuity. Jesus was still recognizable. He still had the stars of, scars of crucifixion, but there was also discontinuity. He wasn't always immediately recognized, and he was able to appear and disappear and pass through walls uh, at will. So while Jesus still had a bodily form, it was different than during his earthly life. So the resurrection of the body does not mean the resuscitation of the bodies we now have, as, for example, was the case with Lazarus. Rather, in resurrection, God transforms recreates, you, you could say recycles because there's some parts that are reused. God in resurrection transforms our bodies, recreates them so that they are no longer captive to decay and death as they are in this life. That's the key difference. Verse 44 in the New Revised Standard Translation, which we heard this morning, speaks of both the physical body and the spiritual body. Now, what is clear is the phrase physical body or natural body does not mean that which is concrete and material in contrast with the spiritual body, which is immaterial, made of spirit and vapors. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that when our bodies are sown in death, they embody the soul. That's literally the word there, the, the, the soulish body that is our normal life force. When our bodies are raised from death, however, they embody not the soul, but the divinely given spirit. In other words, the soul animates our present mortal bodies, while in resurrection, our new spiritual bodies will be animated by the spirit. In verses 50 to 53, Paul speaks about the transformation which happens in the resurrection, and he explains we will not all die, that is, some people will be alive at the return of Christ, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For this perishable body must put on imperishability. This mortal body must put on immortality. That's clearly evidence, friends, that we are not inherently immortal by nature, but instead we must put on immortality as God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. New Testament scholar Oscar Kuhlmann writes, if we want to understand the Christian faith and the resurrection, we must completely disregard the Greek thought that the material, the bodily, the corporeal is bad and must be destroyed. For Christian and Jewish thinking, the death of the body is also destruction of God-created life. Therefore, it is death and not the body which must be be conquered by the resurrection. The whole person who has really died is recalled to life by a new act of creation by God. Something has happened, a miracle of creation. That's Kuhlmann's quote, but I'd, I'd say a miracle of recreation. That's what happens in resurrection. Think for a minute about what a critical event Jesus' resurrection, the discovery of his resurrection, was for his first followers. 
Had they already believed in the immortality of the soul, the resurrection wouldn't have been big news or any great discovery as it clearly was. Just as resurrection implies that God will recycle and recreate our bodies at the end of time, God will also recycle and recreate and bring healing to the, the earth with the descent of what the writer of the Revelation to John calls the New Jerusalem. This promise of a new embodied existence and the recreation of this world means that what we do now in our earthly bodies and on this earth really matters. God will not simply destroy or abandon the earth by wiping the slate clean and starting over, but instead will recycle, recreate, and heal both our bodies and the earth we see around us. I love the way that Paul ends this resurrection chapter with a very practical and encouraging word and a call to Christian service. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord, your labor, that is our acts of service, is not in vain. British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright comments on verse 58, and this is, I think, a very thrilling quotation. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strangely though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of God's creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. And so, friends, know with certainty that Jesus' resurrection, our hope of resurrection of the body, makes all our efforts to serve God not only meaningful, but gives them lasting value. Let us pray. Thank you, dear God, for our hope of the resurrection of the body, of the gift of life everlasting that you provide us and all who trust in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ's resurrection, we trust that as Paul promises, every act of faith and service and mercy and outreach and kindness has lasting value and will be incorporated into your kingly reign in your eternal kingdom. Fill us now, O God, with your spirit that we may serve you with enthusiasm each day. In the name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen.